Hi everyone, this is Jeannie Poole, the Editor-in-Chief of Heart Rhythm O2 Journal. Welcome to the March issue. The first paper is Sociodemographic Determinants of Oral Anticoagulant Prescription in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation, Findings from the Pinnacle Registry Using Machine Learning. This is by Dr. Zara Azizi and colleagues. This study sought to evaluate social and geographic determinants of oral anticoagulant prescriptions in the ACC's Pinnacle Registry. The authors note that prior risk prediction has been based solely on clinical factors. Data between 2017 and 2018 were analyzed for associations of patient and site of care factors and prescriptions of oral anticoagulants across U.S. counties. Machine learning methods were used to identify factors associated with the use of oral anticoagulant prescriptions. A total of 864,339 patients with non-valvular AF were identified of whom 68% were prescribed an OAC. Prescription rates across U.S. counties were assessed. The details for the machine learning methods are described in the manuscript. The primary findings are that 1. County OAC prescription rates ranged from 26.8 to 93%, with higher OAC use in the Western United States. 2. The most predictive patient features included the use of aspirin, antihypertensive, anti arrhythmic agents, lipid-modifying agents, or antiplatelets. Second, age. Third, mean household income. Four, INR values. Five, clinic size. Six, patient weight. And seven, U.S. region. The third conclusion is that beyond age, variables included in the CHADS FAST score had low importance in the enhanced random forest model. The authors conclude that in a contemporary national cohort of patients with atrial fibrillation, Underuse of oral anticoagulation remains high with notable geographic variation. Note that this paper is accompanied by an editorial by Drs. Daniel Modaf and Jennifer Wright. The title of the next paper is Prolonged PR Interval in Incidence of Atrial Fibrillation, Heart Failure Admissions, and Mortality in Patients with Implanted Cardiac Devices, a Real-World Survey. The first author is Dr. Harad Yarmo Hamadi. The purpose of this study was to investigate the effect of PR interval on various well-adjudicated cardiovascular outcomes using a large optum database of patients with implantable pacemakers or ICDs. The PR was measured off of the presenting rhythm on the device interrogation. The study endpoints were time to the first occurrence of atrial fibrillation and time to heart failure hospitalization or death. 25,752 patients were evaluated. The average intrinsic PR interval was 185 plus or minus 55 milliseconds. 15.3% of the patients developed atrial fibrillation over the approximately three years of follow-up. In the subset of 16,730 patients with available long-term device diagnostic data, a total of 15.3% of individuals developed atrial fibrillation during the 2.6 years of follow-up. AF incidence was significantly 30% higher in patients with a longer PR interval. Multivariable analysis showed that PR intervals equal to or greater than 190 milliseconds was significantly associated with higher incidence of AF, heart failure, hospitalization, or death when compared with shorter PR intervals with a p-value less than 0.05 for all three parameters. The authors conclude that in a large real-world population of patients with implanted devices, PR interval prolongation was significantly associated with increased incidence of AF, heart failure, hospitalization, or death. The title of the next paper is Absence of Significant Myocardial Injury Following Elective Direct Current Cardioversion for Atrial Fibrillation by Dr. 
Ronstan Lobo. This study asks a question that has been investigated in the past and is of high interest. Here, the question of myocardial injury from AF cardioversion in a contemporary prospective patient group is assessed. The authors look at high-sensitivity cardiac troponin T and troponin I. Both were measured pre-cardioversion and at least six hours post-cardioversion. Myocardial injury was defined as being present when there was a greater than 50% change in both troponin T and troponin I. 98 patients were included with a mean cumulative energy delivered of 121.9 joules. Multiple cases, or 23.5%, required 300 joules or more. The maximum cumulative energy delivered was 2,455 joules. The primary finding was that a numerically small but significant change was noted in both troponin T and troponin I. The median change, however, was only 1 nanogram per liter for troponin T, with 25% of the study population having a change of 0 nanograms per liter, and 75% of the population having a change of up to 2 nanograms per liter. Similarly, the median change for high-sensitivity troponin I was only 0.7 nanograms per liter, with 25% of the study population having a change of 0 nanograms per liter and the remaining 75% of the population having a change of up to 2 nanograms per liter. Overall, only 2% of the patients met the pre-specified criteria for myocardial injury. The authors therefore conclude that the troponin changes were low as measured by high-sensitivity troponin T and troponin I and that if significant troponin changes are observed, etiologies other than the DC cardioversion shock, should be considered. The next paper is titled Assessment of Available Online Educational Resources for Patients with Atrial Fibrillation by Dr. Melissa Middlethorpe and colleagues. This is a really interesting analysis that looks at the quality of patient resources for educational materials regarding atrial fibrillation. The author's methods are detailed in the manuscript, but briefly, the inclusion criteria included websites with comprehensive atrial fibrillation information, and information about treatment options, and then the Patient Education Materials Assessment Tool for Printable Materials, or PMAP-P, and PMAP for Audiovisual Materials were assessed for understandability and actionability. A PMAP-P score of 0.70 indicated that those websites were acceptable for understandability and actionability. Those websites then underwent a discern score assessment of the information content, quality, and reliability. In total, there were 49 websites that underwent full review and scoring assessment. The mean PMAT-P score was 69, and the mean PMAT-AV score was 63. For the websites that underwent the discern scoring, the mean score was 55. Most of the websites were based in the United States, Australia, and New Zealand, with the remainder from the United Kingdom, Canada, Europe, and Asia. Of the 23 websites that scored 0.70 or more on the PMAP-P, most of the major associations were included, such as the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, the Heart Rhythm Society, and the Heart Foundation. In addition, there were four industry-based websites. In assessing the content, 98% of the websites contained information on the association between stroke and stroke risk. For comprehensive information on AF definitions, symptoms, and types, 96% included this information for patients, and 92% provided information on medication therapies, while 89.6% provided information regarding procedural treatment options. However, only 74% provided information on lifestyle factors associated with AF. 
The author's key findings included, websites that provide information on atrial fibrillation for patients are not designed with appropriate content, including limited understandability and actionability. When scoring information, quality and reliability are available, the overall quality of the information is low. And then finally, most websites for AF provide comprehensive information on the association between stroke and atrial fibrillation. However, there is limited information provided on lifestyle and risk factor modification. Next up is a paper titled Contemporary Trends in Cardiac Electrophysiology Procedures in the United States and Impact of a Global Pandemic by Dr. Monty Scott and colleagues. This study explores EP procedural trends prior to and during the COVID-19 pandemic. Trends were obtained from publicly reported CMS and Medicaid services data between 2013 to 2020. Procedural rates were calculated per 100,000 Medicare beneficiaries. Between 2013 to 2019, the annual rate of all cardiac EP procedures increased from 818 to 1,089 per 100,000 beneficiaries. In terms of the types of procedures, catheter-based EP procedures increased from 324 to 675, while CIED rates decreased from 494 to 415. Of interest, pulmonary vein isolation procedures increased the most amongst ablation procedures. This was from 9.9% of ablations in 2013 to 18.2% of all ablations in 2019. During the pandemic, that is 2020, the rates of both catheter-based EP procedures and CIED procedures decreased. However, PVI ablation as a share of all ablation increased and represented 25.2% of ablation procedures. The authors conclude that ablation procedures have eclipsed CIED procedures and that PVI and VT ablation procedures have continued to increase. The title of the next paper is Prognostic Value of Early Sustained Ventricular Arrhythmias in ST-Segment Elevation Myocardial Infarction Treated by Primary Percutaneous Coronary Intervention, a sub-study of Validate Sweetheart Trial. The first author is Dr. Marina Demidova. In this study, the authors look at the prognosis of VTVF after STEMI occurring early between 24 and 48 hours. Ventricular arrhythmia episodes were characterized regarding their type and timing. Survival status at 180 days was assessed throughout the population registry. Non-monomorphic VT or VF was observed in 3.4% of the patients and monomorphic VT in 0.5% of the patients. Only 2.7% had early VA episodes. VA episodes were associated with a higher risk of death with a hazard ratio of 3.59 after adjustment for age, sex, and STEMI localization. Ventricular arrhythmias after PCI were associated with an increased mortality compared with ventricular arrhythmias before PCI with a hazard ratio of 6.68. Early ventricular arrhythmias were associated with in-hospital mortality with an odds ratio of 7.39, but not with long-term prognosis in patients who were discharged alive. Additionally, the type of ventricular arrhythmia was not associated with long-term mortality. The authors conclude that the occurrence of ventricular arrhythmias after PCI was associated with an increased mortality compared with VAs occurring before PCI. Long-term prognosis did not differ between patients with monomorphic VT and non-monomorphic VT or VF, but events were few, precluding the assessment of its prognostic importance. The next paper by Dr. Supavich Hestachi is titled Bacteremia Due to Non-Staphylococcus Aureus Gram-Positive Coxie and Risk of Cardiovascular Implantable Electronic Device Infection. 
In this study, the authors examined the characteristics of patients with CIEDs who develop non-Staph aureus GPC bacteremia and their subsequent risk of CIED infection. All patients with a CIED that were hospitalized at the Mayo Clinic between 2012 and 2019 and were identified with non-Staph aureus GPC bacteremia were assessed. 160 patients with a pacemaker or an ICD developed non-Staph aureus GPC bacteremia. CIED infection was present in 56.3% of the patients, in whom 37.5% were classified as definite and 18.8% as possible. The bacteriology included 45.6% of cases being due to coag-negative staphylococcus. 33.3% of the cases were due to enterococcus. 14.4% due to virulence group streptococcine, and 6.7% of cases due to other organisms. The adjusted odds of CIED infection in cases due to coag-negative staph, enterococcus, and viridins group strep bacteremia were 19, 14, and 15-fold higher, respectively, as compared to the other non-staph aureus GPCs. In patients with CIED infection, the reduction in risk of one-year mortality associated with device removal was not statistically significant. Hazard ratio was 0.59. P-value, 0.198. The authors conclude that the prevalence of CIED infection in non-staph aureus GPC bacteremia was higher than previously reported, particularly due to cases of coag-negative staph, enterococcus species, and viridins group strep. The authors recognize that a larger cohort is needed to demonstrate the benefit of CIED extraction in patients who are infected due to non-staph aureus gram-positive cocci. The final paper is titled, Impact of Race on Outcomes from Catheter Ablation of Ventricular Tachycardia and Structural Heart Disease, a Prospective Registry from South Metropolitan Chicago. First author is Dr. Nathan Kong and colleagues. In this study, the authors report racial differences in outcomes of patients undergoing VT ablation. 258 consecutive patients undergoing catheter ablation for scar-related VT between 2016 and 2021 at the University of Chicago were prospectively enrolled. The primary outcome was VT recurrence. The secondary outcomes were mortality or the composite endpoint of left ventricular assist device placement, heart transplant, and mortality. 22% of the patients self-identified as black and 44% had an ischemic cardiomyopathy. Black patients were more likely to have hypertension, chronic kidney disease, and VT storm at presentation. At seven months, black patients had higher rates of VT incurrence with a p-value of 0.009. After multivariate adjustment, there were no observed differences in VT recurrence by race, adjusted hazard ratio of 1.65, all-cause mortality, adjusted hazard ratio of 0.49, or composite events with an adjusted hazard ratio of 0.76. The authors concluded that in a diverse prospective registry of patients undergoing catheter ablation for scar-related VT, Black patients had higher rates of VT recurrence compared to non-Black patients. But when adjusted for hypertension, CKD, and VT storm, Black patients had a comparable outcome as compared to non-Black patients. Well, that summarizes the March HRO2 2023 issue. Thanks so much for listening and tune in next month.